like, oh, if you want to talk about a crazy volatile year in American history, you know, it was always 19, you know, every year was, well, it's no 1968. 2020 might be the closest contender that I've seen. Well, 2020 has surpassed 1968, in my opinion. Surprise! Welcome to a bonus Bituation Room podcast live. I am your host, Francesca Fiorentini. This is comedian and uh, life partner, mm-hmm. Matt Lieb. Hey! And it's you know it's a bonus episode because I'm on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never in the main show. I'm only a bonus guest. You know why? why? Because you can roll with anything. Right? I roll with the punches, you know? Mm-hmm. You just get, you get it in you one day to be like, I want to do a bonus episode. Yeah. And then you just scream down the hall, Matt! Yeah. Come in, we're doing a bonus! And I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wasn't doing anything. You're playing... Uh, I was playing uh, Ghost of uh, Tsushima. Ghost of Tsushima. Tsushima. Yeah, yeah. If anyone wants to watch Matt play Sush- Ghost of Tsushima, he should probably start a Twitch channel. Tsushima. He, that's what it's called. He, it's a small island off of the mainland of Japan. Uh, and it's a, it's a really fun game. Anyway, we are... The reason I wanted to go live on this bonus is because, you know, I know y'all want to watch the RNC. I don't want to interrupt your hate watching and your beautiful viewing. Lara Trump is uh, a category for hurricane that is barreling <laughs> into Houston right now. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but we wanted to talk to a good friend and mentor of mine, uh, Max Elbaum, who wrote this book, Revolution in the Air. Um, I wanted to take the full hour to pick his brain, to talk about the Democratic National Convention, the Republican National Convention, the future of progressive movements in this country, the future and the hopes and prospects for real change. Uh, why we're suddenly talking about Marxism all of a sudden? Why Why is the RNC obsessed with obsessed Marxism, with Marxism yeah. one day to the next? Obviously, we can't ignore um, what's going on right now in Kenosha and the murder of Jacob Blake. Um, and the murder of two other activists um, or protesters by militia. We will have a show on Sunday that also addresses that. But right now, the man, the myth, the legend, he's an author. He is an activist. He, uh, he, he is a great guy. Again, he's my mentor. And um, if you don't have Revolution in the Air, you need this book. It is great. Please welcome to the Habituation Room, Max Elbaum. Hi. Hey. Oh, hi. How you doing, Max? You know, it's a schizophrenic life right now. My own corner is good, but the world is a mess. Right. That sounds about right. I feel like we can all relate to that. Every time I feel joy, I feel guilty. Like, oh, no. Yeah. The world's on fire, but uh, we moved into a really nice new apartment. So things are looking up. (laughs) It doesn't help the world, you know, for you to feel bad about being in a good situation doesn't help the world at all. So you should feel good about it and leverage it. That's what you're doing. Yeah. I want to welcome everyone watching on Facebook. We're doing this live on Facebook for the first time. Usually we do bonus episodes on YouTube and Twitch, but welcome. Thank you for being here and for your comments and for watching this instead of the RNC. Yeah. Also consider deleting your account. Yeah. 
because Facebook <laughs> is bad. <laughs> Facebook melt your brain. Facebook will melt your brain. Max, do you have any friends who have been radicalized by Facebook? Because not to, it's not about, every time I talk about boomers, people get very mad, but of people of a certain age, mm -hmm. milieu, tend to spend a lot of time on Facebook. Good use of milieu. And believe all of the things that it's telling them and all of the ways that it's tracked. Do you have like that one friend? I know you're steeped in amazing radical history and movements and you've got some of the, the coolest friends from a lifetime of dedication to revolutionary struggle. But do you have one who like just went off the deep end and became like a right winger? Uh, yes. Uh, I, I know people from the 60s who I was with in SDS and other uh, radical movements then who later moved pretty far to the right. Yes. Wow. Unfortunately, that's the case. You say that. I, I Caught nuclear war strategy at the Naval War College. What was that? One, one taught naval uh, nuclear war strategy at the Naval War College. Damn. So he was teaching, at the point at which he was teaching naval war strategy, he was left-wing, or he... No, he went all the way. That, that's what, that was where he moved on yeah, that's, to. That's where he, he made his uh, heel turn, as uh, to use a uh, professional wrestling yeah. term. Well, before we get into everything, I mean, I want to I wanna ask, because we have to open every show with what are you bitching about? So let's go around. Matt, you want to start? Yeah, sure. I'm bitching about. I'm bitching about um, the uh, the recent announcement that the NBA is going on strike. Not the fact that the players are going on strike, but that uh, the comments uh, from mostly white people with tactical sunglasses are making, uh, you know, on Twitter is just they. It consistently blows my mind that the, the idea of kind of like a, uh, athletes showing solidarity with people who are, uh, you know, being shot in the streets by mm -hmm. cops, mm -hmm. showing solidarity with people who are fighting against police brutality is always met with the same, you know, white, tactical sunglasses looking dude who's just like, I got some crime statistics you could look at. I have a statistic. This is my statistic. 100% of people who post crime statistics on Twitter are racist pieces of shit. <laughs> With Asian wives. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they always. have to tell you about their Asian wives. Yeah, because that the, the Asian wife ensures you can't be racist. Yeah. They that, always, Max, you know this, that if you aren't racist, you have to marry a person of color and put that in your bio mm -hmm. that uh, you are married to that person of color. And yeah, then, yeah. And then in like your bio, you write, you write happily miscegenated. And then you're supposed <laughs> to, <laughs> that's how you know that you're not racist. Well, this yeah. is how I come, why I come on this show because I learned something in the first five minutes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, shout out to uh, LeBron James, which is something I never thought I'd say because I'm not a big LeBron James fan. Uh, but shout out, uh, not his politics, but I just as a basketball guy. Uh, uh, but yeah, shout out to him for, uh, you know, helping to organize the players to strike in solidarity uh, with, uh, yeah, the recent uh, shooting in Kenosha. Yeah. Well, how about a shout out to the Milwaukee Bucks? That's my home team. I grew yeah. up in 
and uh, they got the ball rolling. On they this. did. And, uh, you know, I watched the Milwaukee Bucks game in 1971. That's the last professional basketball game I've been to. Wow. Uh, when I lived in Milwaukee at the time. 71. Right so from- you, so uh, was that the Kareem team? That's right. That's the one time I actually got to see Kareem play in the, wow. in the, same, in the same stadium. That was that, a, a real humble. That was awesome. that was and the year I think they won, right? He's out there waiting and pitching and uh, doing really good politics. You read his columns, so oh yeah, you know, and he's really proud of those Milwaukee Bucks today. Yeah, yeah. I imagine so. Max, I know you've got a, a similar bitch or a bitch in the same vein. What are you What are you bitching about? Well, you know, when I grew up in Milwaukee and Kenosha and Racine, the other two industrial cities uh, on the Lake Michigan there, you know, that was before deindustrialization. I mean, there was plenty of segregation and plenty of racism, but there were union jobs and there was a road, especially for African-Americans, into making a decent living in home ownership. And, and it was a very hopeful time with some of the mm-hmm. games that were made in the 60s. And it's painful to see your hometown and the other places that I spent some time in. I had friends who lived in Kenosha and Racine. Uh, you know, it's right down the road. Uh, it's painful to see that. And what's happening now, I mean, you said it. I mean, you know, the, the alliance of the police and the militias uh, shooting people down in the streets. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's I've got a similar bitch. I think we're kind of all just upset about the same thing, which makes sense. And I, I I just can't believe, you know, there are videos, you know, here's the thing about, you know, a lot of video based news stories are at once incredibly important to watch and also very upsetting. And also, you know, I am not of the ilk of what happened before this video or what happened after, but, you know, for sure, it's important to get a full picture of a story. I'm not talking about the murder of Jacob Blake, but this militia, you know, the sort of militia, if you can call it that, armed white guy in tactical glasses coming out yeah. un, unsolicited um, and the complicity between them and the police. And I was like, well, I don't, how can we say that there was complicity? And then there's two separate videos, one of them where one of the militia guys like, well, the police told me that they were going to push the protesters in our direction and we were going to take care of them. And then, you know, and he might have been lying. He might have been blustering. Um, Bet bet a million dollars he's not. But he might also, (laughs) I mean, then there's another video of, you know, a a military or police tank. And they're saying, do you want any water? Mm -hmm. Do you need water? And they're offering these militia men water. It reminded me of, uh, who was the the Charleston shooter? Um, Dylan Roof. Dylan Roof being taken out for McDonald's after being arrested for doing a mass murder. Yeah. It's just like this constant coddling and nothing but empathy and understanding uh, from one white supremacist group to another. You know, that's... And this is, I think, where it, it gets very scary. I think if you're Black in America, you've understood the links much more up close, but I've always, I think it becomes very chilling when, and I think we've reached, we've, we've reached the, um, we're sort of at the Rubicon here when it comes to fully knowing and understanding the legacy and the surviving legacy of how, of police being part and parcel of, 
uh, white supremacy and enforcing um, and policing and shooting and killing black Americans. Um, but, you know, there's always the, well, there's some good cops and aren't they, they're not all, they're not always the same thing. And then you see that there's this awful tag team that to be fair, people who've been protesting white supremacy like Antifa have seen that for years now. They've seen the ways that when there is a white supremacist march and then they go to counter protest, the police will protect the people, the, the white supremacists. But I mean, it's a, it's a good jumping off point for what I want to talk to you about, Max, which is this political moment and your book, because we're working on a new ep- uh, new season of Newsbroke, and Matt wrote something recently that I thought was really funny, which was he was he he called 1968 Nerf 2020, so like uh, practice 2020 as as the most like sort of runner up for the second most volatile year. Right. In Nin- the, in the 1968 history. used to uh, you know be like oh if you want to talk about a crazy volatile year in American history. You know, it was always 19, you know, every year was, well, it's no 1968. 2020 might be the closest contender that I've seen. Uh, but I don't know. That's coming from someone who didn't live through 1968 and only knows about it through documentaries in the movie Forrest Gump. <laughs> well, 2020 has surpassed 1968, in my opinion, on mm-hmm. all kinds of levels. Uh, which is not to take anything away from 1968, but it's a comment. <laughs> scale and scope of 1968, of 2020. Um, So on the one hand, on the protest side, this protest movement, the uprising to defend black lives had kicked off after uh, George Floyd was murdered. I I mean, it's, you know, on the front page of the New York Times that it's the largest mass movement in U.S. history. And that's, I think that's true. The level of participation of people of all backgrounds uh, following black leadership, the level of conversation about coming to grips for the first time with the history of what the Civil War even meant, which Mm -hmm. was not done at the scale that it's being done today in uh, looking back at that. It's become a mainstream thing ever since the New York Times and the 1619 Project. So if you want to look at it that way, And on the other side, the level of polarization, partly because the information systems are now completely separate than they were in 1968. In 1968, everybody still watched CBS, ABC, and NBC. And of course, people had antagonistic opinions about what was going on, but there was a single sort of news reference point. That's completely gone. Uh, If you spend time on Fox News, you're living in an alternative reality. And right now, Fox News is being criticized by the far right of being too centrist. And there's that (laughs) other OAN that's come in there. And the other thing that's going on here, which I think is uh, very important, is that Even the white supremacists and the reactionaries in 1968, uh, they felt they had a backup plan. If they had to concede uh, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, they were not in danger of their world falling apart. Mm. Uh, The country was still 75, 80 percent white. Uh, The U.S. was the most powerful economic country in the world. 
was unchallengeable in that respect. So although you don't want to underestimate the level of violence and uh, antagonism toward the protest movements, it was a different psychology. Uh, mm-hmm. On the right today, they really do believe that their civilization is at stake. Yeah. Uh, there and and it's driven by a lot. It's certainly been driven by propaganda. It's driven by the uh, messages that come from the billionaires and all of that kind of stuff. But it's driven, I think, especially by demographic change. Uh, sure. The country is changing demographically. The proportion of people of color is growing is twenty percent more than it was. It's up, and it's projected to be a majority people of color country in uh, another 20 or 30 years if current demographic trends continue. Yeah. And there's an incredibly large layer of the population, mostly white people who are older, since the younger generation has grown up. One of the gains of the 60s is at least younger people will grow up in a more multiracial context than we did. Absolutely. Um, it's certainly a different context on on the mass media and television and the different roles that people play in society. Um, The older white people, by and large, uh, are are still living in uh, Leave it to Beaver land. That's considered normal America, real America. And they, uh, the psychology that their world is falling apart, it's also got to do with the fact that you know, Vietnam was traumatic for uh, the U.S. society and especially for the right and the war makers. But yeah. uh, they were coming off still, a lot, you know, World War II and victories. The United States hasn't won a war for 40, 50, 60 years. Yeah. It yeah. can destroy things, but it never wins anything. And uh, yeah, we can't even win the coronavirus war. We've we've pulled they, out of that they, war they, as well. So there's a level of desperation on the other side uh, by any means necessary that's different from 1968. And it's accounting, it, it's much more akin to what the secessionists who were the slaveocracy felt when Lincoln was elected in 1860. That, that psychology, uh, that, um, that level of what they considered their way of life was under threat. I don't think it's comparable in that sense to the 1960s. It's comparable to the 1860s. Uh, And I think that I think that's giving this an incredible edge uh, on on their side. Uh, And then all the things on our side, as far as the uprising and the, the deeper understanding of how systemic the problems are uh, that's come out and been exacerbated by the pandemic. Yeah. So what you're saying is uh, it's worse and and civil no, wars coming. and civil wars coming. Cool. 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 I think you are very so right. Whereas in 68 that for lack of a better term, not the cultural revolution, but a but a revolution of culture was taking hold that the myths about America were still sort of intact. I mean, I think you go into in your book, Revolutionary in the Air, that everyone should read, the ways that the myth of America being the good guy was very much crumbling. And I think right now we've been able to maintain that America is the good guy 
in the world we've lost it, but in 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 sort of internally because, um, hey, people of color and immigrants can still make it here. Look at Nikki Haley and uh, all the other you know uh, tokens that are being trotted out by the RNC, um, which I <laughs> all right wing Cubans, all right wing exactly. <laughs> Look at all the right wing Cubans who are <laughs> doing so well. Latino, you know, and it's just like. It, 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 it's unclear who they're talking to. Are they trying to get people of color or what it really feels like is they're trying to talk to white people and say, look, uh, we're not coming for your stuff. This is fine. We still believe in the American dream, even though we've got more inequality than we did during the Great Depression, you know, like. Um, and so I think we're seeing it's so funny just because hearing night after night, the RNC repeat these myths and a little bit same with the Democrats repeating the myth that like, hey, we're going to get through this. Yeah, we've got the best spirit in the world. And it's like, I don't know, man. I don't I don't know if anything. Um, I don't know if that myth of equality, we know that's being completely unraveling in front of our eyes. Um, so you're right that it is a hard time because there aren't new figures and myths and I, not myths, but there aren't new principles to latch on to unless we, you know, actually uphold the civil rights leaders and figures that we should be currently and in throughout history. Yeah, we've got a lot of, uh, I, I feel like a lot of the American psyche at this point needs to prop up these uh, zombie myths, these, these myths that have long since been proven to be myths and yeah. untrue and dead. Um, and rather than kind of like coping with it and coming to, uh, you know, an understanding about, you know, uh, our own history, we've decided, at least on the right, to double down on the myths, no matter how factually incorrect they are. Yeah, all you have is that belief. I mean, this is the thing with Obama that I thought was interesting was Obama was starting to get the country used to the idea that we live in a multipolar world and that we trade economically with the world, whether or not, you know, like we believe in, you know, free trade deals, which was the one area that he and the Republicans were very much in line on. Um, pretty much the only time Republicans would ever defend Obama was over the TPP. Yeah. Um, but like, without being explicit, like, it's almost like we need an actual talking to like, hey, there's a whole world out there. You're not, you aren't number one and you've got a lot to learn from the world. And by the way, your history isn't great. So anyway, hand-holding, hand-holding, hand-holding. Yeah. Please put down your gun. But for sure, the person we have in office, Max, is leading us down this path of race war, essentially. Like, this is where, you know, this is where we're headed. I don't know if we've had someone, you know, we've had, like, Nixon years were bad. Reagan years were bad. Lots of dog whistling. I don't know if there's still a whistle involved in the kind of, race baiting that we're seeing from this president. Um, no, no whistle there. It's a foghorn. I mean, they're pretty explicit. I, yeah. You know, when you invite, when you invite two people from St. Louis, whose only claim to political fame is that they got their guns out and waved them at the Black Lives Matter protesters who were marching past their house peacefully. When those kind of people get invited to the speak at the Republican National Convention, there's a direct line between that and what just happened in Kenosha. Absolutely. Which is the, I mean, the message that is being sent from the RNC is basically the message that was sent by the Klan under Jim Crow. 
which is mm. the blacks are coming to take your house and rape your women. Get your guns out yep. and fight back. And that's the signal that's coming from the RNC. Now, the, the tricky yeah. thing that we have is, and, and, and that signal is what gives those cops uh, who shot uh, Jake in the back and, and the, that militia uh, guy, the signal is we've got your back. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Uh, you know, th that's exactly what, what's coming from that end. And then the tricky part for us, and because I think you're absolutely right, Francesca, uh, the only way to, uh, if you want to, you have to root yourself in American history if you're going to change America. And we have to root ourselves in the resistance struggles that have existed since the period when the Native Americans resisted uh, genocide and uh, Africans who were enslaved. Uh, and at that, before racial slavery became fully consolidated, some of the white indentured service joined together to try to fight for a different vision. We have to tap into that thread in American history, uh, yeah. Sitting Bull, Frederick Douglass, that whole kind of thing, which yeah. points to a systemic change. Uh, there are people who are against Trump, certainly in the ruling elite, but a significant section still of the populace in the middle and working classes who are both white and people of color, who think that, who share the idea that Trump and that narrative is um, just totally uh, racist and horrible. And they also don't think it's viable. You know, a, hmm. a government that relies on terror and force has lost the political battle. It's just yeah. relying on repression. You know, you read Chomsky manufacturing consent. That works better. You get people to support the thing. So there's a whole wing of the ruling class, Obama is certainly a representative, who believes that the, the Trump agenda, besides that he does feel that it's wrong and racist, uh, that it's unstable for uh, continuing American domination of the world, that you have yeah. to bring in people from different uh, ethnicities. You have to have a more participatory thing, not not even even strictly from a narrow political point of view, but I, how do you get, you know, there's all these articles in the business press about the, these policies are terrible because other countries will get the brains from all around the world. I mean, the United States, you know, the post-World War II economic boom was yeah. partly built by all the people who came here or were brought here, including the ex-Nazis who built the space program and the atomic bomb stuff and all of that. With your friend. Uh, Friedrich von Braun. They were a magnet. When that's gone, other countries become that. So the, yeah. there's a sector of people who still believe in U.S. capitalism, but they're against Trump. And I wish I wish China wanted all our Nazis. You know, like the next superpower would just take the old superpowers Nazis. Then yeah. we could just ship all of the crazies over there. Except for our Nazis don't know how to make bombs anymore. They only know how to meme. Yeah, they know how to make like shields that say save the children. <laughs> yeah, they only they only know how to make your Twitter avatar into something Greek, like a Greek statue. <laughs> God. I, I mean, one thing that you said, I'm just going to keep coming back to the book because I've got so many questions about it. One thing you said in it was that America's largely a pretty conservative country. And that struck me. And 
I don't know. Sometimes, let me just be real with you. Sometimes when I hear and see this amount of insanity, I'm like, why do we fight for this place? <laughs> like, why? What? <laughs> why are we? Maybe we'll just never get there, you know? And and I know that that's in my that those are in my depressed moments when I feel like, why do we still fight for this country that is is so conservative and is so wrong and is and it like has Fox News behind all of the insanity and would rather believe in conspiracy theories like QAnon um, than I don't know than believing that all you know that Black Lives Matter, for example, that actually all lives matter. Um, so I was wondering, like, how you reconcile with that? How do you stare down the, the these nut jobs and say, yeah, man? It's worth fighting for still, you know, that that what keeps you going is what the uh, I don't know. Maybe it's not even a question. It's just sort of wondering, like, I think there's been a lot of narrative like, well, if we just talk about working class issues, we can all get around that. Right. What about healthcare? What about the fact that some that maybe a lot of the country just is conservative and unable to be reached and will die on the hill of white fragility forever and ever and ever, you know, from their cold, dead hands, their white, their whiteness. <laughs> well, first of all, making systemic and revolutionary change is hard in any country. So it's not like anybody's got a simple job. Uh, and there have been, you know, some of the most dedicated uh, people and most courageous people in the world have fought for a, a systemic change for 150 years, and here we are. So, uh, you know, it's not like uh, we, it, 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 we have some things tougher than other people, but um, there are some ways in which certainly for us up until recently, it's been easier uh, in some respects, or it's certainly been um easier for some sections of the population in terms of being radical. But there's material reasons why the United States is the kind of country that it is. It's got to do with settler colonialism. It's got to do with the fact that the so-called frontier, which was a product of Native American genocide, offered white people tremendous opportunities to get land and get rich, uh, where, where when you have a racially a racial caste system, Isabel Wilkerson's new book about caste, you know, whether you want to, whatever terminology you want to use, when you have a racially coded uh, proletariat uh, enslaved or in Jim Crow, uh, there's a lot of room for the white people to do a lot better, which is the material basis for all that. It's also the reason that the kind of individualism flourishes in the United States. Even in the capitalist countries of Europe, you don't have that because there wasn't that whole libertarian uh, vision of freedom of you just went out to the wild west, you killed the Indians and, and you had your ranch and that was, you know, the American yeah. dream, mm -hmm. something like that. So yeah. uh, there's, there's material reasons. And there's also material reasons now why the protest movements and people are turning toward more uh, radical ideas. And while there's a whole wave of sympathy for socialism and systemic change, and it has to do uh, with the levels of inequality that have been uh, identified, it has to do with climate change and people feeling the threat to the future of the planet. It has to do with um, 
the way that the, uh, is the way that the economy has evolved, where you have these incredible riches. I mean, this is something, you know, this is old school Marxism, but capitalism has developed the point where uh, the productive forces or the ability of science to solve so many problems. What's lacking is the political will uh, to to yeah. harness that in service. Hello, Silicon Valley. <laughs> thing. Uh, you know, people, uh, Grace Lee Boggs and James Boggs wrote about that in the 60s. I mean, it, it, it takes different forms and different currents on the left. Yeah. But the idea that there is um, tremendous potential to solve the problems, if you could amass the political will and fight the political forces who, uh, you know, who uh, hurt all mankind to save their own, as Curtis Mayfield put it in uh, my favorite song from the 60s, you know, people get ready. So uh, we're here and we have to jump. We, we, we seize on those threads that are the positive potential. Um, yeah. The other thing we have here is, you know, it's hard to build an internationalist movement but there are sectors of the U.S. population that have an organic connection to the rest of the world. Uh, there's no accident that Pan-Africanism and that African-Americans have identified and been in solidarity with Africa numerous times and back and forth. The African mm -hmm. people in Africa being in solidarity with U.S. struggles. Uh, some of the most militant labor struggles in the last 20, 30 years have been driven by immigrants from Central America and Latin America who have experience yeah. with radical movements there and bring that culture here. Uh, yes. In Asian communities, it's complicated because of how Vietnam came down and so on. But um, certainly in the 60s, uh, the, the movements in the Philippines, Philippines, in, in Vietnam, and what what people identified with the Chinese Revolution. I mean, the, the Asian American left probably had more relative influence within Asian American life than any other movement except for the Black movement within Black, uh, the Black freedom movement and the Black yeah. community. So there are all kinds of things that we can leverage if we get it together that can move things in another direction. Um, yeah. There's there's a section of the population, absolutely, that is um, not going to move. But yeah. if you get governmental power, even if you're not completely controlling it, you have tools to neutralize some of the sectors that are in your opposition. You do certain programs that benefit them along with your core constituencies and it neutralizes some of the hostility. It doesn't change their ideas overnight, uh, sure. but it it means that if you uh, if if um, if there is a program which is not completely out of the question if Trump loses between pressure from the left and the uh, self interest of a Biden administration, which realizes if it doesn't do something to move things, it's not going to survive. Yeah. Right. Uh, you certain and, things and not only that is it not going to survive it's going to set us up for an you know an authoritarian with a better plan right than trump an authoritarian who can really back up the bluster absolutely so they have an interest in uh 
also because the other side is such a mafia type operation. It, you know, when they talk about throwing the Hillary Clintons, the Jeff Bezoses, and the Hunter Bidens in jail, they're not kidding. Uh, you know, the, we take that, oh, that's just within the ruling class. That means something to those people. They think that they're going to be, they look at other countries and see what happens when an authoritarian family regime gets in there. Uh, you look at, you know, look what's happening in Saudi Arabia or, or look what happens in Russia where, you know, authoritarian regimes don't represent whole ruling classes. They represent one little faction and they just wipe out other ones. Yeah. Just, just nepotistic. Yeah, it's a family, it's a family I, so, so you can, you can see that if you uh, move in the direction of a Green New Deal, if you move in the direction of some serious health care reform, um, universal health care, even if it's not yet Medicare for all, you neutralize sections of the opposition bloc because they benefit from that too. Now that yeah. doesn't eliminate the need to do the ideological work and all the other things, but you have certain tools to do that with. This is why holding governmental power matters. Uh, yes. I, I wanted to ask you about that, Max, actually. Sorry to interrupt you. I, yeah, no, that's fine. And, and you can jump in anytime you want, Matt. I, you know, one thing looking back at the 60s and 70s, and I want to talk about Marxism a little bit um, because now we talked about how it's become such this buzzword at a time when so many people are turning to socialism and are like, Marxism makes sense. But why weren't there more electoral victories in the 60s and 70s? That that one always, it strikes me. Was it because the movements sort of dis credited and discounted the electoral sphere because they were kicked out of it. Um, but, you know, you see, you have Nixon winning. Then, of course, Reagan nailing the, the you know, nail in the coffin at a time when in your book, as you talk about, so many young revolutionaries felt that they were on the precipice of a massive revolution, something completely different, and they got it wrong. Was it because we gave up that sphere or is it because we were kicked out of it? What, what was that dynamic? Well, I think the main dynamic, the main thing that happened is that the ruling class still had a lot of resources and they regrouped very, fairly quickly. And uh, we underestimated, everyone underestimated their ability to regroup. So yeah. uh, they, they pulled off a fairly uh, sophisticated withdrawal from Vietnam at the cost of tremendous life. I mean... Yeah you know, what, destroying the country. But from their point of view, they played a smart geopolitical game. They busted up the socialist camp, the Sino-Soviet split. Nixon took advantage of that in a, in a way that benefited the U.S. ability to recoup. And domestically, they enlisted the entire ruling class, or almost all of it, in a counteroffensive against the gains of the 1960s. So the yeah. main that was going on. It's it's like the the, the title of that um, Walter Mosley book: "Always Outnumbered, Always Outgunned." We were outnumbered and outgunned. So that that's the main thing. But you're right. Within the movement, there was a problem of a bifurcation, which is sections of the movement that had been in the far left, where I was located, and others uh, tended to see that the electoral system was completely blocked. And uh, were influenced by the fact that in the 60s, it was the non-electoral movements that drove, uh, drove things. 
and underestimated the importance if you were going in over the long haul of having a foothold in the electoral system where you had elected officials and it gave you a permanent representation and you could have your politics out there and it would give you some stability and also to force you to interact with what's really on the minds of the constituencies you have to deliver something to. Yeah. And on the other hand, there were new openings in politics for people who had political ambitions and it was very easy. The system was still strong enough that a lot of people, a lot of people who were radical did go into people who worked in the anti-Vietnam War movement, people who worked in the civil rights movement, went into electoral politics, got themselves elected, and generally moved to the right. Right. They uh, all got pulled, they, they got pulled to the right. And there was it was also the period, don't forget, that now we elected, there was off the black power movement, black mayors were elected, black city officials that had never been elected before at the same time that economic resources were being pulled out of the cities. Yeah. And, and the fe between the federal government policies, deindustrialization and white flight, black power inherited those cities at a time when they were going bankrupt. Not right. because of any problem. It's the same line that, that was used in Reconstruction uh, back in the 1860s, 70s. The new problems that the new governments had were blamed on the people who inherited a hell of a mess yeah. because it was caused by the system itself. And so, someone, upright man on YouTube, says the war on drugs happened, which is a great point. Yeah, in addition, the war on drugs, absolutely. And, and so you end up that split got healed somewhat in the 80s with the Jesse Jackson campaigns and the interface between the anti-apartheid movement, the Central America solidarity movements, the Rainbow Coalition, the electoral work, uh, movement around Palestine. There were a number of things that a lot of people who had, there was a coming together of some forces who had been on the inside gain and drifted a bit to the right and the far left come together in the rainbow. But mm -hmm. by that time, it was very, very difficult. There were some incredible experiences, mostly the Harold Washington experience in Chicago, which was trench warfare around race and racism uh, during the council, during the period of Washington's administration. Um, so there were some places where electoral work George Washington? combined. Which Washington? It, Harold Washington and oh, was Harold. the mayor of Chicago. Uh, okay, okay, yes, I like who? Um, until he died of, uh, you know, a heart attack, and you know that was a tragic loss. Um, but it, you know, by that time, Reagan had consolidated power nationally, and it was just much more difficult. Um, so we all made mistakes in the late 60s. Every political uh, force didn't, you, you know, we didn't understand what was happening, but our opponents didn't completely understand it either. Um, yeah. But they had more resources, so they were able to, uh, you know. Exactly. They were, they were, they were able, able to, to get it done. Get it done. Uh, so now this is another thing that's so exciting about the current movements. Uh, they're more holistic. They're more inclusive. Uh you know, I just got an email today uh, 
from the movement for black lives. You know, no black liberation without trans liberation or no black lives matter without black trans lives matter. I mean, you couldn't have had that in the 1960s. It was just mm. not, there was, it, that was off the table. Uh, right. You know, half of the movement didn't know what a transgender person was. I mean, that was not, you know, in, in, in the mix. Um, so it's much more inclusive uh, on gender issues and many other issues, issues of ableism, issues of intergenerational uh, dynamics. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it's much more inclusive. It's got broader support. And they're now, most of the movement is not willing to cede any side of terrain uh, to the enemy. It's going to fight on the electoral front. It's going to fight in the streets. Yeah. And it's going to arm themselves in self-defense. There are people who are doing that, the deacons for defense, the same as the Panthers and other people did in the deacons for defense in the 1960s. Yeah. So most people have realized that, you know, it, you, you, have to, you, you have to engage on every, uh, every, every battlefront has got to be engaged. You don't cede any of that to the enemy. So what I'm hearing is I should buy a gun. Should I buy a gun? Uh, I, All right, yeah, I won't buy a gun. I'm not giving individual advice on things like that. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, this is, but like, I also think that in a lot of ways, the repression, COINTELPRO, the assassinations of black leaders in the 60s and 70s, um, truly, I think, flex the power of the repressive state in the way that we see on the streets today that, to be honest with you, as just a person who doesn't want to die, makes me immediately go into the like, oh, well, maybe we should do the electoral thing because that feels less scary than this state machinery that will and has, you know, uh, uh, kicked into high gear against you. So in some ways I feel like, and I'm not saying that like the lesson of the sixties was that armed revolution doesn't work necessarily, but it is, I do feel like if you want to play ball on the, like who's got bigger weapons and more of them, we know who's going to win that every single time. This is a longer conversation and a different conversation, but I do feel like it's that amount of repression, um, that amount of repression that makes people stay home, which is sad because it makes people that amount of repression that makes people not be militant and do a direct action or civil disobedience or risk of getting arrested that we know is nonviolent, but it is a militant form of nonviolence. But it also it it um, it tames. A, I mean, this is it's like Egypt now. Right. It's it's very like, you know, it tames a population. So anyway, I, those are. I, I wonder well, about that. I wonder if we look back and are like, well, we don't want to end up like this. Yeah, you're, everything you said is right, but you're combining some things together that have to be separated out. The masses of people will always choose a less risky road over a riskier one yeah. until the less risky road, until millions of people are convinced that it's completely blocked. And yeah. that's sensible. That's not wrong or cowardly. That's completely sensible because a struggle that takes a violent form always hurts women, children, the poor, the most vulnerable, the most. 
Yeah. Who, the, the stance of the left is always to have the struggle proceed on the most nonviolent, most democratic level possible. This is our goal because that meets the actual needs and feelings of the people we're accountable to. Ordinary sure. people who want to get on with their life and their families and are not going to take risks unnecessarily. When millions of people get convinced that the less risky roads are blocked and that they can't meet their essential needs without upping the ante, if you want to use that phrase, that's when people turn to that. In Vietnam, sure. the National Liberation Front in Vietnam, after the crazy agreements were signed with the Americans, spent years before they turned to armed struggle, do, trying to win what they had essentially won and then got, you know, the the Geneva Agreement and all these things that happened, we can't go into the whole history. They spent years laying the groundwork for that. Right. Uh, and this is, was true in, in other successful revolutions where people have been able to move things in a nonviolent way and lay the political framework for that. That's always better. And it's very costly if you have to turn to the military side. Now, the 60s were different from today, and that wasn't as clear to us because the nature of the revolutions in the third world against colonialism and neocolonialism was taking the form of armed guerrilla wars. So that was a big influence on people. And they were proving that it worked. And, and it worked in certain situations to win certain things. It did yeah. work in terms of winning national liberation. It didn't work so well in terms of laying the groundwork for socialism because the economics, the cost to those countries when they finally took power, uh, the difficulty of still being in a world dominated by Western capital, yeah. You know, uh, there was a little too much romanticism of what those movements could accomplish in the, in the left in the United States. It, it was correct, I think, to understand uh, the her heroism and the fact that Americans, North Americans, especially white North Americans, had things to learn from people in the global South, not just be the teachers and telling them what to do. Yeah. But there was a tendency to overestimate what could be accomplished in terms of building a new society in a poor country. I mean, it, Cuba and Vietnam have done some fantastic uh, things considering the situations that they've had to face, but they're not exactly going to be totally inspirational to an American population that's used to a whole different standard of living and has just in a, in a technologically and economically so much more developed society. Uh, so it, 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 extremely complicated fig figuring all that stuff out. And we were young and stupid. I mean, you know, 21, like you said, I mean, uh, uh, you know, people my age of a couple years older, a couple years younger, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and then Malcolm's assassinated, Martin Luther King's assassinated, the Panthers are assassinated, Robert Kennedy is assassinated, John Kennedy is assassinated. 
and there's these armed wars going on in the world. So, you know, oh, we yeah. got to look- 21 at that time. Forget it. Look out. I mean, when we met Max, I was around that age and I was being politicized by, you know, eight years of Bush uh, and two wars. And I remember calling you up and being just so dejected. I think it might have been after Bush, re, you know, won again. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And 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 I feel so I'm just so, so I'm so down. I feel so hopeless. And I think you were like, well, I remember what it was like turning on the TV and seeing, you know, a thousand more American soldiers killed in Vietnam or whatever it was. And and there were days when I couldn't even look people in the eye. And I was like, oh, like it just put, you know, you put me into perspective about how long this struggle has been. And it is it's hard to say that we're better because we're not in another Vietnam to that extent. Right. But in some ways we are, we are shifting gradually this tide. And, um, and I think you're right that we're, it feels particularly volatile because it's this last gasp of whiteness that I do feel, you know, people on the left, they, they dabble in this idea that all we need to do is, foment revolution like all you need to do is prod kick the hornet's nest until we have to have a violent you know overthrow and i think some people saw trump's election as a way to galvanize that revolution and even trump himself it's like and the ruling class and fox news themselves you're like the way they speak you're like do you want a revolution (laughs) like do you do you want guillotines because you're acting like you want guillotines you know yeah they keep they keep talking about Marxism and people being Marxists uh, when there's, you know, I would say the broad population in general who are marching for black lives aren't doing so because, you know, they read Capital, you know, Uh, and after a while, you kind of go like you keep advertising, doing free advertising for Marx at some (laughs) point. Do you do you want this? Because, yeah, yeah, it's almost accelerationism. Which is interesting. I don't know, Max, what are your thoughts on this? I have a theory about why the RNC keeps saying Marxism. I think it's because socialism, they ran all the tests up backwards and forwards, and it has a very positive connotation among the American youth and generally Americans. And a very negative connotation amongst uh, people of an older generation. And uh, yeah, just sure. But now they're turning to the word Marxism. They're just saying Marxism and Biden being controlled by Marxism. And I feel like it's because socialism has been too positively construed but we were talking about whether it also has like incredibly racist undertones to it like why why do you think they're pulling out this word dusting it off just like so many people are young people are now who do are turning towards marxist theory well i i mean like you said these terms have been racialized i mean you know it's the they want to say that the liberal elites are coddling people of color and yeah. are walking horses for, you know, the takeover of America by the barbarians from the other, you know, and they just keep trying any label you want. Liberals own the libs, Marxism, <laughs> so they're going to throw every piece piece of mud at the wall and see what sticks. And for a whole generation, particularly an older white generation, you know, the image of socialism or communism or Marxism is someone's going to come and take your car or take your house or tell you what to do. 
And or a black guy is going to move into your neighborhood. That seems right, to be a that's, big that's, dog whistle. Right. And, and uh, you know, we there are people who, uh, because the models of socialism that have existed so far have tended in an authoritarian direction, some worse than others, there's all kinds of people running around for whom that's a real experience. They know someone who fled Eastern Europe. They know someone who you know, this or that, if you're in Florida, you know, they have their thing about this or that person in Latin America who allegedly was a dictator. I mean, look what happened with the red baiting uh, of, um, you know, uh, Karen Bass about having gone to Cuba and, and yes. all of that stuff, you know. So uh, it it just, it becomes a, um, it's a, it's just another way of being able to lump the white people who are in solidarity with the anti right. who are participating in the anti-racist struggle. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the old term, you know, back in the, back in the Jim Crow days, you were just called an end lover. Uh, right. an end lover. Yeah. That doesn't quite, you need a different word for that. It's the same message. It's just, right. that, yeah. you know, they decided that saying that in the Republican national convention might not be, uh, you know, Tim Scott would have to leave. So sure, exactly. You know, it's interesting. It's it's definitely Marxism has definitely been racialized uh, by the right and also tied directly to uh, Black Lives Matter because uh, the way I keep in touch um, with the boomer generation, the right wing boomer generation online, is by reading comments on Yahoo.com's news section. <laughs> Uh, they, they love, they love Yahoo. Uh, they're big fans. Uh, they've never heard of Google. Uh, and it's just what came with Microsoft. It's just right? what came with Microsoft. It came with their AOL disc. They yeah, put yeah. in their disc and then they go to yahoo.com <laughs> and they read news articles and comment. And one of the consistent comments that I read is people saying, and it's always the same language, black lives matter, uh, leaders, have admitted that they are trained Marxists. That's quotes, <laughs> trained Marxists. And so if you do just like, a, you know, do do a word search on Twitter for trained Marxist and it, you will find- will come up here in Max's book a lot. Well, that's, There's a lot of trained Marxists in this book. Well, that's the funny thing about it is I'm going like, they keep trying to connect Black Lives Matter and trained Marxists. First of all, I'm not really sure what they, I think trained Marxist is shorthand for people who listen to podcasts, but I'm not really sure. Uh, but it, it just seems like a way of of trying it's, to- No, it's shorthand for Soros. It's shorthand for Soros, for sure. Uh, it's like there's a Soros connection, like an anti-Semitic thing. Like, obviously, you know, these leaders need to be trained by the yeah, yeah, secret Jewish cabal. Yeah, they're not smart enough cabal. to do it by the... Yeah, exactly. But also, it just seems like a way to uh, make Marxism synonymous with the movement for Black Lives and, uh, and its allies. Uh, so, uh, to me, when I see the RNC focus on Marxism and hammering at home, I, it's like I hear the dog whistle very clearly uh, as like all of the people you see on the streets, the black people and the white allies and, you know, people of all races and the transgender people, they are what we're talking about. 
that's Marxism. They're coming to your neighborhoods to well, yell at your like dog. They're going to they're going to be they're going to reign supreme with their inclusivity and equality. Yes, they're yeah. going to uh, subject you and enslave you to equality. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. and again, right, and that's the because the insanity about white people losing power is they believe that equality um, is the worst thing that ever happened to them. Uh, they think that people of color are going to treat them the way they've treated people of color for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, not true. Uh, that you know, maybe maybe that should happen, but probably not going to. The idea is actual democracy, is uh, inclusivity, and and um, and actually like a working class, an actual working class. Yeah. And I mean, the word Marxism, a lot of people are identifying as Marxist now. Yeah. Now, personally. I read Max's book when I came up in the anti-war movement. I definitely identify and still do as a little bit more anarchist. And I don't mean it's chaos and everything. I mean, hey, I have I look at the state. I look at state power. I look at, you know, um, where communism has been implemented. And it's scary to me, right? I, do, I don't love all the authoritarian aspects of it. Maybe we want different government. Um, maybe we want anti-hierarchical government. Now, all of that is all theoretical. That's pie in the sky, never going to happen in my lifetime type of stuff. Yeah, that's like conversations that the intelligentsia have over coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As at intelligentsia to, coffee. Yeah, at intelligentsia coffee. Yeah. But I am curious, you know, how do you define Marxism? I mean, to me, it's just a class having a class analysis. But what does that what does that mean to you? And why do you think people are now identifying with that sort of strangely, even though they don't? They don't have no party is trying to organize them. The, the Communist Party hasn't gone after these people. You know, it's just I mean, you've well, got the DSA, but yeah, there's a couple things. The first thing on, on what you said is, you know, people who want to believe the system is generally sound and the message that comes from the government and the ruling class. You think that if there's some problem or people protesting, it's due to some outside malevolent force that's coming right. in and disrupting things. So take your pick, outside agitators, Jews, communists. It's always the external that's come. Otherwise, all these people would be happy. What are they right. what are they laughing about? Or, you know, yeah. maybe they would, you know, raise their opinion, but they wouldn't be making trouble. So it's a standard trope. Uh, and it's just the words change. Uh, anything to imply we're all good if it wasn't for this external other that's coming in and you know, making trouble for us. Uh, you know, Marxism, uh, Mark, to me, you know, Marxism is a way of, uh, Marx used the term materialist conception of history, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I think is pretty good. Uh, it, it, the idea that things that happen in people's consciousness is determined by a lot of material things that develop over time and in history. And you look at those things as the underlying thing that shapes the society, not in a deterministic way, you know, not that A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D in a simple way. I don't think Marxism is a science the same way that physics is a science or something like that. It's not, it's not that kind of, it Though it's doesn't have that science poorly. But, and but it looks anything. at things that way. 
whether there's a so it tells you something about the structures of society it tells you something about what large groups of people who share a common condition are likely to do or likely to move and likely to uh, because of what their interests are because of where they're located uh, and it tells you some things about how the economy works and the different dynamics of race, gender, and other things, if it's done well, how that intersects with economic things. It tells you a bunch of things about that. Yeah. But it doesn't tell you that much about how to do politics, per se. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it is not a prescription about what kind of organization you need, what are the strategy in a particular uh, situation, the the political leaders who have been successful at politics, you know, whether they were revolutionaries or not, the ones who are Marxists have drawn upon Marxism to understand the society they live in, but yeah. they also got something about the art of politics. And uh, that's a related but not a direct thing. And the idea that if you master Marxism, you're going to be able to lead things politically, to me, is not, uh, I don't think that holds up. I don't think that holds up. Uh, it, uh, you wrote a whole book about that. It's really helpful, but it's not a, the kind of panacea that uh, all too many Marxists and all too many groups that have adopted one or another form of Marxism that we fell into thinking a certain way, uh, which turned out to be more complicated uh, than we thought. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what's so interesting about the moment we're living now and the ways that the people are warming to the word socialism is um, that there is a sense that no matter what, we would like to go through a socialist period in this country. We would like to move in a socialist direction. We don't, we know it's not going to necessarily be anti-capitalist, right? If you have Medicare for all, that doesn't mean like, you know, all kinds of uh, money making from the healthcare sector will completely disappear. Maybe so there'll be some stragglers or maybe we just want to, you know, we want one corner. We want one corner where money and capitalism right. doesn't run everything. We, we just want to We corner. just want to nationalize one thing. Yes, just one thing. Just nationalize one utility. Exactly. Just one of the utilities. We're like bargaining and monopoly here. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that and I and that only comes from reality. That doesn't come from having any kind of right analysis or reading a lot of Lenin or whatever. It comes from seeing just how unequal and how um how much ground we've lost, I think, in a lot of parts to this runaway Republican Party and a Democratic Party that has been, you know, not not non-complicit and not um, strong enough when it comes to either standing up to financial interests um, or the Republicans themselves, that we have such a skewed country that we are so far gone in the hyper-capitalist. We, we hear the words late-stage capitalism all the time, mm -hmm. you know, as people kind of understand that. Oh, yeah, late-stage capitalism, the gig economy where I'm never going to ever own a home in my life ever. You know, like, yeah. this is, that makes sense to a lot of young people staring down who know that, ha-ha, as if I'm going to even make 
as much money as my parents did. Like, right. forget about more. Yeah. If I can just get to sort of where they were yeah. in their heyday. Where everyone is starting an OnlyFans for their cat. Exactly. <laughs> well, right now, I mean, there's all kind. For a lot of people, the terms change. There are people who want a people-before-profit society. Human needs come first. Socialism, democratic socialism, revolutionary socialism, Marxism. Uh, unless you really dig in and want to get, you know, here's what this is, here's what this is, here's what this is. And that's a pretty tough one because you can you can define it anything you want in a book, but until it exists in the real world and you look at it, uh, it, it doesn't, it, you know, it's not real. So yeah. the whole layer of society that's figured out that when a uh, private profit is in command of everything, it's messed up. And they want some society where private profit is not in command of everything. And then within the left, people debate, Socialism, democratic socialism, revolutionary yeah. socialism, people before profit. I mean, all that stuff, which to me at this stage is not, it's not a right. It's an interesting question. I'm all for discussion of it. I wrote some things about it in my book, but it's not the right practical question. The practical question is what to do next. And the practical, it's related to where you want to go. Uh, and what you think an ultimate solution is, but it's not collapsible into that in and of itself. The next stage, if we can, um, you know, in the Depression, I remember going to Hyde Park and looking at the uh, exhibits in the museum about the Depression and all this. And they mo what, what was interesting to me, you know, having read all this stuff about, you know, the alignments and what the shortcomings were and this and that and the other. But the interesting thing about it was that they mobilized almost everybody who wanted to move the society forward and have the country get back on its feet, found a place to do something, whether it was artists, photographers, social workers, uh, industrial workers, intelligentsia, they didn't all share an ideology. Some mm -hmm. were communists, some were socialists, some were democratic, liberal. But every that coalition, with all its problems and included a bunch of Dixiecrats, segregationist racists, tried to move the country out of the mess that it was in. And mm. so we you mean weren't in leadership that coalition. The Roosevelt yeah. administration was in leadership and they were yeah. not socialists or they were not revolutionaries, but they wanted to get the country out of that mess in a certain way. And they knew they at that stage couldn't do it without the left and had to give something to the left. So we're entering a period that is likely to resemble that in some ways, which is we have to be ready to play the maximum role we can in mobilizing anybody who wants to get us out of the racial crisis, the climate crisis, the economic crisis, the militarism crisis, and create a different kind of world. If we can get a piece of political power and advance the kind of radical solutions that are really the only way that we're going to get out of this mess. Right. 
and have our doors open for all kinds of other people, including some people who were our enemies in other former, states. Former Trump voters? Our enemies 10 years down the road yeah. to move to the next stage and increase our power as we go along. And as we do that, hopefully it'll become a little clearer from our experience and the experience we'll learn about in other countries trying to do the same thing. What a difference is society would actually look like. I mean, Marx was very reluctant to make any predictions of what the hell socialism would actually look like um, <laughs> until it was moving along. Uh, so I think I think our prospects for that are pretty good. Um, you know, there, you know, the, even a bunch of the Mainstream commentators don't think we can just go back to the status quo before. I mean, yeah. I know, you know, Biden says that and Rahm Emanuel says that and all kinds of people say that. Oh, but God, that is not a real option. We're yeah. either going to Trumpism or we're going to head somewhere in another direction, not at the speed we want and not at the scale that the people listening to this show uh, want. But you start going in that direction and hopefully you start picking up speed uh, yes. if you actually can demonstrate some leadership. And there's some great leaders, people like AOC, Cory Bush, uh, yes. some of the new generation labor people that are coming along, the movement for black lives, uh, watching the, the, you know, some of the speakers and the rallies and the level of sophistication and inclusiveness in who is leading. I mean, you know, I came up in the time where the leaders were all guys in black leather jackets. This is totally different. It's a whole different vibe. Yeah. Um, so we've got, there's some people out there. I'm ready to get behind them. I mean, I'm Wait, an was old guy. Back in the 60s, was it like, the person who had the black leather jacket would be the one to speak. You're like, well, I guess we got to pass the microphone to this guy. Look at him. He's got a jacket. And then that guy would stand on a car and it was like, you know, um, what is it? Mario. Oh, I'm forgetting his last name. Mario Savio. He didn't have Mario a black I mean, people like Stokely Carmichael and Rap Brown and, and Huey. I mean, these were really talented people. They deserve to yeah. be in the leadership. But the point was there were as deserving people who were women and, uh, I, you know, who, who also deserved to be in the leadership, who were, you know, pushed to the pushed side and not given yeah. those opportunities. And if you were gay or lesbian or trans, it was just not an option. Uh, right. So it's not that some I mean, I, you know, I. People like Fred Hampton and, and others that influ that I heard speak in the 60s. I mean, I'm not taking a single thing away from them. It's just you broaden out and, yeah, and include other people. And that's exactly what's happening. And uh, today, the movement for Black Lives, you know, to the extent Matt, there's anybody steering this. One question, last question about, you know, I think there is doubt around whether the Democrats truly understand they have to change. Um, and my hope is that Biden's decency pitch is just the tip of the iceberg, that he's doing that to get this elusive moderate Republican voter or repentant Trump voter. I am of the belief because I refuse to be pessimistic about this. Uh -huh. 
that there is a silent majority of repentant Trump voters who are not going to answer the phone and talk to a pollster. The new silent majority <laughs> is just people who are ashamed of their last vote. I know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> but but my, my feeling is like, he's pitching us on decency, which honestly, even if you're on the left, especially if you're on the left, you get because we are truly the party and the people who have moral underpinnings. Um, so, but I hope, you know, I hope that once he gets there, this is not really a question, but I'm trying to make it sound like a question. Well, that, <laughs> I hope that once he gets there, he knows that it's not just about, it can't just be about decency. It has to be about what is that new deal plan? What, how are you going to make sure, because everyone knows Trumpism was a, was a symptom and not the actual illness. So what's that illness and how do we cure that? Racism, classism, sexism, you know. Capitalism. Capitalism. Yeah. How do we cure that, those illnesses? Well, we're in a period of tremendous change and it's not possible to predict where different individuals are gonna go. What's possible to predict is that there are certain social forces in motion that are gonna push people and put different options on the table. And who's gonna go which direction is undetermined. So yeah. uh, in the 60s, there were surprises of people who moved from one side to the other, mm -hmm. from the other side to our side and from our side to the other side. People, even including elected officials and leaders, some of whom moved to the left uh, and others moved to the right. Uh, and you just don't know on the level of individual psychology, all kinds of things happen. I have no idea. I don't know these people. I don't know who, I don't know Biden. I don't know these folks. People can you got, surprise you, you for good. You got to, you know, Kamala, you got to have a. <laughs> I've met a few of them. I, I have met a few of them, but I don't know them. Um, but people surprise you. I mean, no one predicted, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt wasn't Franklin Roosevelt until afterwards. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Lincoln wasn't Lincoln until afterwards. Yes. You know, and uh, my friend who's went to teach nuclear war to, more <laughs> he was until afterwards. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I do think some people are going to come our way that will surprise us. And we shouldn't be so cynical, the idea that no one can change. I mean, look at Ramsey Clark. He was uh, attorney general yeah. under, uh, uh, under Lyndon Johnson. And then he moves to the far left and he ends up, you know, being, uh, you know, spending 20 years doing that. Yeah. You know, who who predicted that? You know, uh, it, it, these things are not predictable on the level of individuals. Some are I, think maybe, I think Barron is going to be a raging socialist. I think some we can get Barron. And some people who are on the left now are going to defect. That's the bottom yeah. line. And it's just that's how life works. Uh, so I don't I guess I'm still enough of a Marxist or I could, you know, to say that. It's not about individuals. It's about the social forces. And then different people will play different roles. Of course, I hope all my friends play the great 
roles and do what they're doing. And I have certain preferences for this person or that person just based on subjective shit. But it's not how the I world really- I'm sorry. I wanted to, I I really appreciate you taking the time. We should wrap. I I do want to say funnily enough, we're writing a piece about American individualism right now for Newsbroke. I don't mean to plug this show, but Matt and I work on it. And the first piece we're doing is about American individualism and how we've really screwed ourselves by over-believing in it uh, because of look at the coronavirus and sort of the ways that your quote unquote personal freedom yeah. should not be impaired because you have to wear a mask. My individual right not to get my parents sick and kill them with a virus. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But I for sure when you said I'm a I believe in collective power, that I think is what the right is saying when they say Marxist is that they say, aha. You believe in common stuff. You believe in collective good. You believe in communities and schools and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like libraries. Libraries, books. exactly. <laughs> you believe that, that you move as a group, that you're a nation. Watching Ugh. theater. Yeah, yeah that you're a family. Like all of the. Playing team sports. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. And that. <laughs> Guilty. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love them all. I mean, the NBA is Marxist, right? Yeah, there, right yeah, now. yeah, yeah. But that's so, it, it's that you believe in momentarily or wonderfully putting aside your personal comfort in this moment because you see there's a greater good. There's a greater history to fight for. There's a greater uh, uh, community to fight for. And we all have much more in common than then we have that separate us. Mm. So I don't need my personal freedom to have an AR-15 and not wear a mask and go around, you know, brutalizing people. So anyway, I'm bringing it full circle. Guys, revolution in the air, 60s radicals turn to Lenin, Mao, and Che. It's so good. It's so dense. Even if you just make it through the first, like, couple chapters, it's it's so good. And Max goes into all all kinds of what Marxist-Leninism meant on the ground for people who were radicalized by the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and the feminist movement, uh, the LGBTQ movements, and how they um, then worked in like cadre Marxist-Leninist organizations. And what was that like? Was it great? Was it bad? (laughs) How did a lot of it, um, it was very, uh, it seems like it was enriching, rapidly politicizing and there was a political home for people, which I think is really important to have a political home. It's not enough to just be alone on the internet. We all want to find a political home. And I hope you all think that the habituation room is your political home for lack of an actual organization. Uh-huh. Although there are so many uh, movement for black lives, DSA, all the organizations, this podcast is supported. I'm wrapping it up. Max, you don't go nowhere ever and please come back on this show stay here forever stay here forever no but you always so good to talk to you um and uh i i hope to talk to you before november but if not i will see you on the other side of that victory against fascism thank you for being here everybody not only Yes. And I just want to say also, Max regularly writes about politics happening now, not just in the 60s, on organizing upgrade, um, orgup.net, is it? Dot com? Organizing upgrade.com. Organizing upgrade.com. Either one. 
Okay, yeah, either both. one. Organizing Upgrade, Max has great columns, as do many contributors to Organizing Upgrade, as well as you can find their lives on Facebook. They do a lot of live, awesome discussions with great uh, organizers and political thinkers. So check them out. Thank you so much, Max. You take care. You too. Thanks. All right. And that's been the Habituation Room. Oh, it's been great. I've had a great time. Why'd you... I'm just me? pointing. Uh, <laughs> this is my 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 bonus babe here. What's up? Bonus babe. Follow bonus babe at what? Oh, uh, on Instagram at Matt Lieb Jokes. Uh, I'm pushing the IG. I'm pushing the IG because, you know, I just, uh, those matter more than Twitter. So uh, please follow me on Instagram. But I'm also on Instagram at Matt Lieb. Okay. Or uh, Twitter. All right. Thank you, guys. We'll see you Sunday with Nato Green. Um, and uh, make sure to be there 6 o'clock, 9 p.m. Eastern. And remember, don't just bitch about it. Be about it. Bye.